This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and he's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. How you doing today, bro? Great. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year! Happy we're New Year. done reflecting on our lives, and now we're looking ahead to all the amazing things we want to accomplish in 2016. So today, we're going to look into our crystal ball with three questions that determine whether you're going to be financially successful in life. And I sit down with Tess Figlin to talk about her book, Leap, Leaving a Job with No Plan B to Find the Career and Life You Really Want. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So it turns out three little questions can determine how financially successful you're going to be in life. Tell me all about this, Brokamp. Well, it comes from the work of two professors, Olivia Mitchell of the Wharton School in Pennsylvania and Anna Maria Lusardi over at George Washington School of Business in Washington, D.C., and they've done research for years on financial literacy. And they have developed this test that has three questions. And they have found that people who are more financially literate end up doing better in life when it comes to money. They plan more, they save more, they stay out of debt, they manage their debt better, they invest smarter, all that type of stuff. Um, And these three simple questions can indicate whether you are the type of person who knows what they're doing with money or not. So before we get to the actual questions, they asked people in America, they asked people in Germany, Switzerland, all over the world these three questions and what did they learn about how financially savvy we are? Uh, we're not particularly financially savvy, um, which of course is interesting because we are the economic superpower uh, of the world, <laughs> at least at this point. Um, so other countries are more financially literate. But still uh, not great. But not great. No, very. In fact, most countries are not doing that well when it comes to financial literacy. I think Germany had us beat. Yes, and and China is very high up there as well. Um, our kids, they they gave the test to uh, high school students. We're we're pretty low on the list there, behind you know Latvia and the Czech Republic and powerhouses. All, all those powerhouses. Um, and they give it to men and women as well, and they've differentiated by gender and found that men are uh, more financially literate, but overconfident. So they tend to do better, but they don't do as well as they think they're going to do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which, if you know a little bit about investing, that actually can work against you when it comes to investing. So being overconfident in terms of how well you think you're going to do could often lead to investing mistakes. So they thought this test was going to be really simple, but only one-third of Americans aged 50 or older got all three correct. Right. And those who had a diploma, a high school diploma, who you think would be smarter than the average bears, uh, only got 44.3% of those questions correct. Actually, not just high school diploma, a college degree. Right. 40, 44% of them got all three correct. All three correct. Right. All right. So, are you so, ready for the questions? Ready. Okay. Suppose you had 100 in a savings account and the interest rate was 2% per year. After five years, how much do you think you would have in the account if you left the money to grow? So, 2% a year for five years, start with 100. Are you going to have A, more than $102, B, exactly $102, C, less than $102, or D, do not? No, or refuse to answer. Refuse. I love that. Refuse. I refuse. <laughs> then does that mean to they, answer? Does that mean like, they that didn't an mark, option? They didn't mark anything then because they refused to answer. I guess. They oh, left that I thought that like there was someone <laughs> making a choice where they're like, I refuse to answer this I question. Guess. This is way too personal. Uh, I don't know. So basically, 
$100, 2% a year for five years. Did you have more, 102, the same, or less? Do you want to answer it now, or do you want to? Yeah, yeah we can answer it now. The okay. answer is more than $102. Right. And when they first, when they, when they as I was reading this question, when I did this test, you, know, you get nervous, because you're like, oh no, how am I going to do? How hard are these questions going to be? You have no idea. And I read that, and so I was, you know, do you, suppose you have $100, and the rate was 2%. And so I'm like doing the math, like I was expecting them to want me to know exactly how much money you would have. But then when it was like, more than 102 exactly 102 I was like, come on, right. Jeff, please, I can do this all day long. But, right. And I was like, next question, bring yes. it on. So the exact answer is a little actually over 110 if you want to do the calculation, but um, uh, it's surprising that I think maybe two-thirds of people got that one right, but a third of people didn't. Wow. That was the easiest of the three questions. Okay. All right. Next one. Imagine the interest rate on your savings account is 1% per year and inflation is 2% per year. After one year, how much would you be able to buy with the money in this account? So, is it A, more than today, B, exactly the same, C, less than today, or the classic D, do not answer, or do not know, refuse to answer. Answer is C, less than today. So if your money is growing at 1%, but inflation is 2%, your money a year from now, you won't be able to buy as much stuff. All right, and the final question. Please tell me whether this statement is true or false. Buying a single company stock usually provides a safer return than a stock mutual fund. The answer is false. 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 In fact, uh, we, talk, we mentioned this in previous episodes, but actually the majority of stocks, individual stocks, underperform the market. So you're probably better off just buying an index fund rather than buying just one stock. In fact, there's a study from JP Morgan that found that took a look at the Russell 3000. So we all, when we think of stock indexes, we think of the S&P 500. But the Russell 3000 is sort of more comprehensive, includes more companies. And they found that from 1980 to 2014, 40% of all stocks suffered a permanent 70% or higher decline. Ah. Yes. Um, Two-thirds of stocks underperformed the overall market, um, but the return of the median stock, if you just took the average, it underperforms the market by about 50%. Wow. So you really are better off being very diversified, at least until you know what you're doing. Stick with a good mutual fund. So is it the idea that most most stocks don't perform well, but the ones that do just really take off? Right. About a little bit more than six percent have spectacular returns. I mean, we're talking like the Amazon.coms and the Apples of the world. I want those ones. Those are the ones that you want. That is your investment philosophy. Just pick those six percent. Pick the winners, man. There you go. That you easy. Got it right here. Right. So those three questions, not so many people got them all right, but I hope our listeners aced that test. Yes. I'm confident you guys did. Yes. And uh, it, the thing is, it is kind of surprising. And the, the research has come to the conclusion that, first of all, we need more financial literacy in schools and more financial literacy in the workplace, because that's where people are making major retirement planning decisions. How much am I going to put in my 401k? How am I going to invest it? Um, so, hope that happens. But in case that's not happening at your school or work, I think the best thing you could do, besides listening to this podcast, of course, um, is get the recently published or updated edition of Personal Finance for Dummies. Just came out last week, updated by Eric Tyson. It's got everything you need to know about financial planning as well as investing. If you're looking for just an investing book, um, John Bogle's Common Sense Investing is great. It has It's only updated through 2007, so just know that it was published before the Great Recession. But that's a great primer for investing. If you read those two books, you're going to know an awful lot, and you're definitely going to get those three questions right. 
The Motley Fool has written a few books about investing as well. You're not going to plug any of the books that we wrote? I so this is the thing with me, right? So I always feel I always feel a little uncomfortable promoting our own products. I want people to know that this podcast is for general education and we want you to be better. Um, of course we if do If you have, had to pick a Motley Fool book. If I had to? If you uh, had to plug it, which would it be? The great uh, per- personal finance workbook. Although it is now maybe 13 years old, oh. it was written by uh, yours truly and Deanna Yoakum with Tom and David Gardner. Uh, so much of the personal finance and investing principles are the same. like Things like IRA limits and all that stuff's changed, but that's a good one. Um, probably the classic Motley Fool book is the Motley Fool Investment Guide, um, or You Have More Than You Think. Those also have not been updated in several years, but the principles are still timeless. Was that really painful for you to plug your own books? It, it is surprisingly uncomfortable. I never plug my own books. I never plug my own newsletter. I do have a newsletter. I think it's a good one. You might want to consider it. How's that? You, you, you're comfortable making me be a shameless huckster? <laughs> no, it's not a shameless huckster, but you're just like, uh, you know, I've got a newsletter. It, uh, it's, I try really hard. To make it good and interesting, and I think people like it. You might like it. You might not. That's okay. No judging. 30-day money-back guarantee if you don't like it. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, okay. All With right. all our newsletters. All our newsletters are 30-day 30 30 money-back guarantees. All right. There you go, I'm sorry, that was so painful. All right, so finally, though, for the people who maybe didn't ace this quiz, should they feel really horrible about themselves? Or are you like, eh? Maybe they just read the question too fast, and if they'd gone back and read a little more closely, they wouldn't have gone it wrong. Well, I, of course, would not want anyone to feel horrible about themselves, but I would certainly uh, encourage them to uh, use this as inspiration to know more, because the evidence really is clear. And there was a question with the study, right? What is it causation in terms of, you know, is financial literacy lead to more wealth, or do wealth are wealthier people just smarter about money? And they did some various things that these types of folks do to make sure that it was clear that there is a causation there. And it just makes sense, right? Yeah. If you're going to make a big financial decision, saving for retirement, buying a house, whatever, how to save for school, the more you know, the better the decisions you're going to make, plain and simple. The more you know, shing. That's, that, my, that's the sound the star makes. Is that from ABC? What NBC. Is that? I think it was NBC. Okay. Doesn't matter. The more you TV. Know. It's from TV. It's from TV. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Tess Viglin was a longtime host at Marketplace, which aired on public radio stations across the country. Chances are right now you're saying, yeah, I do know that name. She was great. Yeah, you were one of her 9 million listeners each week, so she was kind of a big deal. After 11 years, it was supposed to be her dream job. She quit. And in her book, Leap, Leaving a Job with No Plan B to Find the Career and Life You Really Want, she talks about the day she decided to quit with no lily pad to jump to. So, Tess, thank you for joining us today. Entirely my pleasure, Allison, and I love the image of a lily pad. I think I'm going to steal that. Yeah, okay, great. (laughs) I'm glad I could help. Uh, So, being the host of Marketplace, it was pretty much your dream job until it wasn't, and I want you to dish. I really do, but I think we should probably share a bottle of Pinot first. But yes. If, yes, if you could, or a good a good whiskey, a good whiskey or a Pinot. Uh, if you could, though, just provide a little background. Why did you leave this this dream job? I had been in public radio for a little over 20 years. I'd been at Marketplace for 11 years, six of those um, in personal finance. 
And so part of it was I was tired of the subject matter, which I'm sorry to say, uh, personal finance is still very important, but I had just been doing it for so long and I felt like I kept answering all the same questions over and over and over again. You, and probably, had a, you probably had a hash mark on your wall for every time you said, have a six months emergency fund. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Or contribute to your 401k up to the max. Up to the match. <laughs> um, so that was part of it. I I was just restless. Um, there were also internal issues in my workplace that I didn't feel were going to be solved to my satisfaction. Um, so that's kind of all that I've said about that because I I think at this point in the story, it's, it's not important. Um, but... I do say that part of the decision because I think that is what contributes to a lot of people wanting to leave. They are, they're mismanaged. They're not treated with respect. uh, They're not valued by their employers. I think that that is a huge problem nationwide in this country and not only in this country. Um, And so I guess my message is that if you do feel like that, and I suppose, you know, I can say there was an element of that in my decision. Uh, you need to go. You deserve better. You talk about how people assumed you quit because you wanted to have like an eat, pray, love experience and how annoying that was. <laughs> and I totally get that. I would be so annoyed if people were like, oh, you're just quitting so you can go eat Italian food and like have a lover in a few different countries. Yep. I'd be like, no, no, that's not yeah, what so- this is about. Yeah, there, there were two things that people thought. Um, first of all, actually, to this day, I'm three years out. My story is out there. Most people can look up why I left Marketplace. To this day, if you Google my name, the first thing that comes up is Tess Vigland fired. Ugh. People think I was fired. Um, so that's annoying. Yes. But second of all, yes, and it's not only me, but several of the people that I talked to for the book, also people who left their jobs without knowing what they wanted to do next, said that they kept hearing, that their friends kept saying, oh, that's so great. Now you can, I know you, that you just want to travel the world and eat great food and you're just going to go off on an adventure. And you're like, no, that's not what this is about. Um, but clearly a lot of people have read the Eat, Pray, Love book and they assume that that's what you're going to do. I don't know if it's different in other countries, but most certainly in the country called the Washington, D.C. metro area, you (laughs) are your job. Like, that is your identity. You go out to the bars, first thing people ask you, so what do you do? Um, I read your book. (laughs) I know you. that was tough for you to be like, I'm no longer Marketplace's Tess Vigeland. I'm just Tess. How How did you discover that being just Tess was actually really awesome? This was, I think, the existential uh, struggle that I had over the last two years, especially in the first year after I left my job and after I kind of left my career, although I've, I've still been doing it off and on since then. Um, you know, when, when we go to a party and we meet new people, the very first thing out of our mouths is, oh, so what do you do for a living? And... For a long time, I had an awesome answer to that, right? Oh, I host my own national radio show. No I big thing. So cool. No big deal. Yeah. And then I didn't have that anymore. And I didn't have any answer at all. I mean, my answer was, um, well, I quit my job 
And now I'm a freelancer and I'm figuring out what I want to do next. And people kind of look at you cross-eyed because nobody does that. And for me, the whole idea of figuring out who I was outside of what I did for a living was, um, was this, it was this psych psychological struggle uh, that took a long time to get over. And I had identified myself with my work for my entire career. And I kind of didn't have anything else that, that I thought described me. Now, I, first of all, it's no, no longer the first thing I ask anyone when I meet them for the first time. I refuse to do that. And second of all, my answer usually kind of tries to veer off to something else that's interesting about me. Um, I'm teaching myself photography. That's, I think that's a great conversation point. Um, where's the last place you traveled to and why did you love it? That's something that I talk about. And I think those are, you know, they're, they're interesting things about me. Maybe they're not quite as interesting as, you know, having this great job uh, as a national radio host, but I still think they're interesting. And I've, I've just had to become more comfortable with, with who I am outside of my job. And I think that's a struggle that a lot of people have. And it's the one that poses the greatest challenge, I think, when you do what I did. So for you, I could see someone reading your story and being like, well, she has a spouse that she can rely on. So it's not such a huge risk. I have kids or I'm single. Yep. I could never do it. Like, what's what's your response? That's what a lot of people say. Um, they say, oh, you're so brave and oh, you're so fortunate that you can do that. But uh, you must have won the lottery um, or you must have, you know, tapped into your 401k. And my response to that is, yes, I was fortunate that my husband was able to pay the mortgage. And, you know, we did back of the napkin uh, calculations and figured out that we that we would be able to get by just on his income if I had no work at all. My income dropped to a third of what I was making in the first year that I was self-employed. It was difficult, but we didn't go out to dinner as much. We didn't go on big international trips. Uh, we adjusted our lifestyle. And some people aren't willing to do that, uh, particularly because it involves like maybe saying no to dinner out with friends when you always used to say yes before. And so then they're, they're going to ask you why. And you have to explain to them that maybe your income isn't what it was before. And we're embarrassed about that. I've gotten over that. I don't care what anybody else thinks. And they also see that I'm a hell of a lot happier now than I was before my leap. Um, so you do, when I talk about leaping with no plan B, I'm not saying leap without thinking it through. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, you do need to be practical about it. You need to prepare yourself. But what you can also do is really think about how you can adjust your life. You know, can you cut back on certain things that you didn't think you could do without? Um, can you get a cheaper car? Can you get a smaller house? Can you send your child to community college for two years and then have them transfer for a degree? And I guess what I'm here to say is that I had all the trappings. I had everything I possibly could have wanted. I had a nice house. 
nice lifestyle. I checked off all the boxes and I'm doing just fine after unchecking a lot of them. And in fact, it's, it's lifted some burdens. And, um, I, you know, I guess I would just say that you'll be okay. Yeah. It's interesting how financially we can do without a lot of stuff, but like emotionally and the whole keeping up with the Joneses, it's a lot harder to do without a lot harder to say, I don't care what other people think of me. This is what I'm going to do. I have a really great friend. Um, She's probably listening to this right now. I'm not going to say her name, but she knows who she is. And she has been (laughs) she has been toiling away at a job for wow, I want to say 20 years now. And she's probably been miserable for about 19 of those years. And it's just it's I love her so much and I want her to be happy. And this job is not keeping her happy. So what is your best advice for my for my dear friend? Okay. Well, first of all, get out. (laughs) I know it's easier said than done, but life is too damn short to spend eight plus hours of your day in something that doesn't bring you some element of joy. You will regret it eventually, and it'll wear you down. And you just have to believe that there are options out there for you. Now, if you don't believe that there are options out there for you, here's something to think about. We get stuck in this idea that, well, I've been doing something for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and I've sunk so much effort and time into it that that's the only thing I'm good at. And so I'm not going to be able to find anything else. First of all, you have more skills than you probably are even aware of. We, when we spend so much time, um, a number of years doing something and getting really good at it, it starts to become part of us and we forget that it's a skill. So it becomes part of our DNA. Uh, For me, it was public speaking. I bet that there's something in what she does for a living that is the same thing. And if she starts to think about those things, then she can start to think about how to translate that. The way it translated for me is that now I make good money as a corporate MC, going to corporate conferences and MCing their conferences and interviewing people on stage and doing that sort of thing. And it's highly remunerative for me. So again, it's not something that that I would have necessarily ever thought of while I was doing what I was doing. I, I wouldn't have thought of it as something as an option. So sit down, take some time, take a weekend and really think about what you are good at at your job that you kind of do without even thinking. And then think about how you might be able to translate that to some other industry. Um, The other thing to think about, and this is, I think, even harder, is that especially for women, it's so hard to Think about trying to explain why you are stepping down a career ladder, why you are leaning out, because we're not supposed to. We're all supposed to be pushing forward, climbing the ladder. The thing you have to get over is living a life, having a career, just because it's what you think everybody else expects you to do. You're not responsible to anybody else. You're responsible to yourself and you're responsible to your immediate family. That's it. And 
if you can get past the notion that somehow you're doing something wrong, that somehow you are less ambitious for wanting to step away well, for you failed. a short time or a little time. Yeah. The, you know, you just, you cannot live your life for the expectations of someone else or for the expectations that you had of yourself 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. And you also have to let go of the idea that just because you've been doing the same thing for a long time, that then it was a waste of all that because you're going to go try to do something new. Um, you can, you're always building on skills that you have. And it's also an adventure. If you're going to go try something entirely new, good for you. That's, that's what we're here for. Why not go experiment? You do not have to do it like everybody has told you it has to be done. You don't have to do it like all the books tell you it has to be done. Make your own path. I know it's cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. Do what is working for you. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. There you go, friend, unnamed friend. Tess says you can do it. Tess, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a really great talk. The book is Leap, Leaving a Job with No Plan B to Find the Career and Life You Really Want. Hopefully we can have you back you on the show really, sometime. really want. Really, yes. No, really th want. thank you, Allison. It was a great conversation. And, you know, I, I try not to be Pollyanna about all this. It's not easy. It's very hard. You have to do a lot of work on yourself, but it's worth it. Give it a shot. If you're not happy, find a way to get some joy in your life, in your work life. It's absolutely worth it. So we have a little update. Someone, our listener, David, found the appropriate carrot slash stick to get bro to finally do his weekly State of the Family Finances report. You did it! I did it. Yes. So sorry, David. Bro is not going to pay you $100. Right. It was good. And David said he was going to send us pictures of him spending the money, various things, claw machine, going to the movie. So, David, yep. you're going to have to use your own money on the claw machine this week. We'll see what happens next That's week. That's right, because we agreed that... You got it. If you got it set up and going, you wouldn't have to pay him a hundred bucks. However, you have to pay him twenty five dollars for every week that you don't do it going right. forward until I don't know. Yep. We pick some arbitrary date. So stay tuned, David, and claw machines everywhere. Yes, I'm so excited. We finally found the thing to motivate you. It's great, and it feels so. I mean, we all know this. When you finally do something that's been kind of weighing on you, it feels great. So, and is your was your family psyched? Were they like, "Dad, this is the coolest thing ever"? No, not necessarily. But you know, it's we're tying it all into chores and allowance, and so you know, it's getting wrapped up into all kinds of fun stuff. So, what's the most interesting thing you learned from your from putting together this report about your family finances? Did you, were there any revelations? No, not any particular revelation. Really, what with I'm doing it through Mint, and Mint you can have a weekly update on your goals, and of course, college is the goals for our one of the big goals for our three kids. And if you want to save enough to pay fully for college, it is a tremendous amount of money. Mm. It led to us just thinking, okay, what are we going to do, especially with one of our kids going to school in three years? Like, it's a, it's a real issue with us. So uh, I would say that was the most important thing that caused us to think about that. It's nice for me to hear that you, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, grapple with the same personal finance issues that other people do. You're human. I am. 
I am very, very well. The fact that I have to do this proves that I'm human. And, and by the way, I have interviewed maybe 200 experts in investing and finances, and every single one of them will tell you nobody's perfect. They will all, often as an aside, say like, "Okay, I'm telling you this is what you should do," but I'm telling you also that I always have struggled, <laughs> struggled doing it, or I've, I haven't gotten a chance to do that. Nobody does this perfectly. Pobody's Nerfix. Now we just got to figure out what's going to motivate Rick to open up a 529 for his kids. Was it that Bro m- talking about how terrifying? And yeah, how that actually do? makes it sound hopeless. I might not bother. <laughs> no! No, no, no. You definitely want to do something. Uh, I need a carrot. Who's going to fund my account for me? If I can find somebody to fund my account, I will open it. Or do you want Do you want to pay David 100 bucks? No, that's a stick. I don't need a stick. <laughs> All right, sticks or carrots, we'll try them all to, so that Engdahl kids can go to college. It's going to happen. All right, the show is edited faithfully by Rick Engdahl. You can email us at answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish. <laughs>